in a nutshell you have to be the best most knowledgeable and the most commercial person in the organization you have to know more about almost every dimension than than anyone else and that is i think the real appeal that you can have such a sort of broad insight hello and welcome to the invisible vault this episode features an interview with paolo tanucci paolo is cfo at merix a diversified global financial services platform Paolo has been with Merrick since 2018, having joined as COO and becoming CFO in 2020. Prior to Merrick, he served as Group Treasurer at Commonwealth Bank of Australia. He has also worked as Head of Funding and Liquidity at Barclays Bank in London and spent 12 years as Global Treasurer for Lehman Brothers. On this episode, Paolo discusses how to reduce your vulnerability to currency hedging, staying on top of the latest and greatest in fintech platforms, and how to effectively secure accounts against emerging cyber threats. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. The Invisible Vault is powered by the team at Kariba, the global leader in cloud treasury and finance solutions, empowering CFOs and their teams to transform how they activate liquidity as a dynamic, real-time vehicle for growth and value creation. To learn more, visit kariba.com. So please enjoy this interview with Paolo Tunucci, CFO at Merex, and your host, Daniel Schaefer. Well, Paolo, I think with Merex, having some API and AI interest, there's a great opportunity to kind of uncover some of that. But beyond just pitching and promoting Merex, let's, I just want to hear about your thoughts as a financial professional. You've been through the ranks. I mean, you've done the banking bit. You've really been a part of how to finance companies large and small. And I think you have a unique perspective on the value of technology as it is a facilitator of liquidity and finance to keep businesses moving or to potentially help businesses grow. Yeah, I mean, as you say, I've been through the ranks and I've seen the sort of evolution of the finance function. I think that finance has probably become a little bit more central to most decision-making for one reason or another. Either it's because of this sort of importance of reporting accuracy or the onus on reporting accuracy or, or because of the need to manage your balance sheets and your liquidity and your cash, but it's certainly become more important. You know, when I started, you know, technology was really quite rudimentary and it was quite difficult to sort of even get basic information. My sort of starting place in the industry was trading bonds. Getting positions was difficult, let alone sort of understanding all of the sort of cash positioning behind that. But in my career in the last 25 or so years, you know, we've seen huge improvements in the level of information, the sort of speed in which it's been generated, the sort of accuracy, the insights you can get. And I think it's allowed us as financial institutions, as players in sort of financial markets to, you know, to service a lot more clients and to do so in much larger size than would have been the case not all that long ago. And it, and it has, you know, it's been absolutely transformed the, the sort of quality of the offering that, that you can have. And you can see that that evolving, whether it's through APIs, which allow connection for data or for execution, or whether it's through some of the opportunities around sort of artificial intelligence. I mean, you can see how those might improve our client offering. And for a firm like Marix, that's really at the center of 
everything is, you know, how do you improve your client offering? How can you service more clients in a sort of higher quality way? And yeah, that's certainly at the center of how I think about our technology. Yeah, absolutely. And as the world opens up again, if we're doing a slow reopen, that customer service and human connection and the sense of feeling like you're offering a value added service beyond just servicing the the client is really critical today. People are looking for something more. And technology in many instances can provide some extra data, some extra insights that they may not have thought about. Are you leveraging those insights yourself, Paolo, or your company, Marex, to help your clients really see a bigger picture about the opportunities in front of them? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we have a you know, variety of ways in which that's provided or, or offered to uh, to clients. And, it's, and we're always looking to extend that. We have a a central client portal which allows you to get access to quite a lot of you know, underlying market data it allows you to get access to execution capabilities it allows you to to get access to particular channels of information that you might be interested in so it might be that your particular interest is in agricultural products and and so we have a variety of ways in which you can filter that information and in the past those those were only really accessible through research reports or emails being sent out and you know, now it's much more digestible you can more easily f- follow the, the sort of chronology you can download the data you can you can reformat things into something which is more useful for you so i think that that evolution has is is, is sort of playing out in a better quality product, I think there's still quite a long way to go. I mean, we're, we're not unique in doing this. I think it's been, you know, it's been sort of center of a lot of financial services improvements. The access to information, the access to execution, whether that's internet banking or mobile phone banking for sort of retail customers, whether it's sort of investment for your broker or in our case for the more sort of professional level transactor, the access to those capabilities is now much more centered around electronic and electronic offering. Well, it's really fascinating to hear that. And I want to dive in even more. So let's back up a little bit though, Paolo, before we do, you gave us a a, a hint of where it all started for you in the bonds market, et cetera. But tell me even more fundamental to getting into banking bonds, et cetera. Like why was finance on the radar for you? How did that bubble up? I mean, for, <laughs> there's so many things to do in life. What was it for you that made finance the one? Well, I started my career in the early 90s. So, you know, really a very long time ago. And at that time, in fact, before then, there'd been this huge transformation in the banking sector in the UK. And it went from being this really rather old-fashioned, antiquated and and protocol-driven market to one which was much more open. I was at school when Big Bang happened in London. It was right at that time when some of my friends were moving into the city and it, it, it had a lot of profile. It was, I, you know, I thought a very sort of exciting time in that industry. There were other industries that I think were emerging then, but I was probably a better finance person than I, w- I would have been a DJ or music. You know? <laughs> so, you know, sure. so that, well, that wasn't really a path that was, was likely to yield as much success. So, I, I mean, I, I slightly sort of filtered into that because it would just happen to have a lot of attention and be an area where there was a lot going on. 
And as once I came out of university, it sort of evolved. The establishment in London had become very international. There were a lot of opportunities and they were really interesting. I mean, this was a time when the capital markets were growing enormously. So, yeah, I think that drew me into it. By the way, Paulo, for, for some of us who are thinking the Big Bang is when the start of time, maybe some <laughs> of our listeners aren't familiar with that. Can you share? Well, yeah, the Big, ba- the Big Bang was in 1987, essentially the deregulation of the London-based capital markets. It was at that point that essentially all of the sort of US and international investment banks established offices in in London. London was looking to become the center of international capital markets and to compete with New York, which was much more established. So, you know, opening up stock markets, opening up the uh, the sort of fixed income markets. And so it was that point of deregulation. And and I guess the sort of terminology was suitably exaggerated to make it sound like it was the beginning of the universe. But uh, yes, that 1987 was that that point of deregulation. But but it was maybe the beginning of the the financial epicenter for the UK, as you're saying. That moment in time that really was the catalyst for where it, the region is today. Quite frankly. Yeah, I, I mean, up to up to then, I mean, the UK market was really very sort of UK centric and really old fashioned, and literally you would have runners taking bags of securities from one office to another. And that deregulation opened up the market to a lot of international players, and particularly, I mean, Japanese and American banks that really were, were the sort of dominant and earlier participants. It, it led to a lot of investment in infrastructure and the infrastructure to support those operations in terms of the communications networks, the sort of legal infrastructure, the settlement infrastructure, all of that happened around that time. And I think it did act as a catalyst for this explosive growth in financial markets, which then ran for 20 years. Yeah, that no, that's fantastic. And I think that your idea about going to potentially considering the DJ gig versus uh, finance, uh, both equally sexy, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well... (laughs) <laughs> some people some people might think that most would disagree <laughs> maybe the long-term play was uh, a little better thought out for finance but it is an exciting time it was then and it has been evolving and i think now with another set of the open banking another layer of relaxing of regulations has created opportunities for finance leaders again and also startups and fintechs which has been really a hot area of commerce and interest and business development for many years. Did you think about your financial beginning then in 1987, you said, because it was something that really was getting a lot of attention. How did you first jump into it? Like what was your first or a teller at a bank? Did you get into finance or economics in college or university? Yeah. What, what was your foray? I was I was still at school in eight in eighty seven in high, uh, high school in in eighty seven. I, I went to university where I studied economics, 
And probably at that time, it actually was, probably, was perhaps a little less popular than it is now, at least what I'm told. But um, you know, I was fortunate to be able to sort of study at Cambridge, which was a very well-regarded university. And then when I graduated, there were quite a lot of opportunities just because the market was expanding. They were looking for young people who were numerate that had my type of background, you know, sort of quantitative background. So I, I, I moved on to a at that point onto a trading sales and trading desk in bonds bonds being fixed income securities and that time it was it was mainly it was mainly euro bonds corporate issuance and some municipality type issuance so that that was my first foray into into finance well i had no idea we were going to have the chance to talk to a quant that was <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's really an interesting background and and maybe something we can talk about here in our next section as we think about technology and the cash crossroads. Show me the money. Hear this, Katie? Money. Cash money. When do we talk about money? As you were saying, in an interesting way, that deregulation happened and people were no longer running packets of information down the street. There were opportunities for technology to come in. And certainly technology is now more advanced than it was then. But with the help of, of people who really understand the technical aspects of the math of the regression analysis, technology became an aid. I'm just curious, as someone with your background in banking, Paolo, what is your vision for technology and, and how have you seen it help yourself or others in, in the field? I mean, technology is, is an enabler. It's a liberator of tasks. It's sort of an enabler of people being able to provide a better service to to customers or, or, or a better product if they're sort of serving an internal market. I mean, initially, my, my time, the sort of ability to process complicated and large amounts of data and value new instruments, that was enabling the growth in that market you couldn't have you couldn't have had capital market instruments whether those are securities or the derivatives around those without the technology to be able to generate risk and pricing information we know now that's very sort of well established processing capabilities are multiples you know millions of times greater than they were you can now get really refined information you can provide really very sophisticated offerings that um, wouldn't have been available before. It's allowed us to compress pricing. The market's been able to compress pricing and still have viable business models. But it's really about sort of enabling that that evolution. And the way that I think about technology is to improve processes, improve client offerings, alleviate some of the bottlenecks, which might well be function of sort of manual tasks. And that is sort of also reflected in the client offering. So if we can take ourselves out of having to process on a direct basis the confirmations or the sort of communications, because it's just done automatically, well, I think that's good for everyone. It's good for the clients. It's good for, it's good for us. So, Paolo, you were talking about the technology being an enabler. There's two things that are very interesting here that I wanted to really unpack, and that is Technology has done so much, and I think we take for granted the value that is generated as a result of the technology. One of the areas of value you said was the bottleneck. How does technology really un 
lock the bottleneck or make data move faster so decisions can be made more quickly, more efficiently. It's like saying everything is more efficient and streamlined. That sounds great. But what is that bottom line value to the customer and to a company like Marex? Why does that matter? Quite simply, I think as you as you remove sort of manual interventions in any sort of process, you are going to see a faster transaction or a faster response, and you're going to be able to reduce costs because you know the fact is any sort of manual intervention has a more direct sort of financial impact. I mean, for for us, if we are able to issue a security. And all of the settlement and confirmations are, are on a straight through basis without sort of any very, very limited manual intervention. We'll be able to do many more of those transactions and we'll be able to do them at much finer prices and still have a viable economic model, which it's not about making super profits because you know yeah. typically these things only last for some time. It's about being competitive and the customer getting a a better experience at a lower price. Could you put a percentage on the value or a dollar amount that in the absence of technology, you would be 30% slower? Is there a way we could maybe quantify that? It's hard because, I mean, for a business like ours, we would measure our productivity in terms of commissions or, or, or revenues. I think the our ability to service clients is so dependent on on the technology and you almost couldn't imagine doing it without technology. It's certainly worth, I, I think, 50 plus percent of our revenues. I think everyone would be 50 percent less productive if we didn't have access to you know, really very sophisticated technology, you know, whether it's communications or market information or, or sort of ability to process that and, and come up with ideas products for clients so yeah it's for, it's really very central it's almost inconceivable that we we could sort of operate without very very high dependence on technology yeah absolutely i mean crib is a financial technology solution provider and so i'm swim and breathe and live that reality but even in the simplest form when your internet is down or your phone dies, you suddenly have that vulnerability. And I would imagine when you're in a fast-paced financial technology firm in a very global fast-paced technology center like you are in London, it would just be crippling in the absence of having that technology. So I guess when you're looking at your team in order to really make things happen for your clients, how do you bring it to the table? Or is it just the expectation is there that, that technology will always be there to be that enabler? Or are you constantly looking to maybe innovate and, and push the envelope with your developers to make that technology better? We're always pushing. I think if you stand still, you are going backwards. And there's new products and new sort of platforms, new languages emerging all the time. So I don't think that you can sort of sit on a stack and say, that's the perfect technology stack and I'm never going to have to modify. So we're always looking to bring in new products or upgrade them, make them quicker and faster. And the pipeline of potential opportunities in terms of sort of technology development or new technology from third parties is, is enormous. There's always more demand than there is capacity to develop or to sort of bring in those 
technologies, but absolutely, you've got to move forward. I think even the sort of best established products that have got huge sort of support bases in terms of the infrastructure, they need to evolve. They're not going to be viable forever. Yeah, absolutely. Just to unfold a few more layers on that, we were just talking to, as I said, the Financial Times, and they were asking about this massive financial impact from currency exchange. And I'm really curious what your thinking is on that, where we're seeing billions of dollars of impact to just a quarterly earnings that are recorded by one company. Some companies are actually providing guidance that they're anticipating half a billion dollars in losses just from FX as this global financial challenge on so many levels, geopolitical, the supply chain disruptions. What are your thoughts there in terms of the best way to manage that going forward? It's a challenge for any international company. We, we, we have a, a large U.S. business and, and we have a lot of clients that transact in U.S. dollars. So even away from just the U.S. clients, there's a lot of activity in U.S. dollars. It means that you're going to have a you're going to have FX exposure. You're going to have a difference in currency between some of your costs and some of your revenues. And for every company, that's got to be thoughtfully managed. Sometimes the sort of accounting requirements make that quite difficult. Sometimes the sort of quality of information that you get makes it difficult. So we hedge our risks. We've got quite a sophisticated way of doing that. There's no perfect hedge. And so you inevitably end up with some impact from uh, from FX movements. That's it's been part of the sort of global market and that's part of globalization. So yeah, it's right now, it's a, it's a big thing for US companies, um, US reporting companies. Some will benefit because like for us, our sterling cost base is now lower and a lot of US companies will suffer. Yeah, the, the strong dollar is not making it easy for those U.S. companies who were enjoying the opposite when the dollar was a little weaker. So these are new headlines. And when you're talking about this organic exposure elimination or finding ways to reduce your vulnerability to currency hedging or currency exchange, what do you think is the most effective approach? I know you have a little background there. Or potentially, what are your thoughts to other CFOs who may be facing the same challenge? There's actually a lot of instruments that are available, and they're relatively low cost. You know, F, the FX market is, is extremely liquid. So whether you, you're transacting spot or forward or options, you'll get a good offering. My advice would be talk to your banks because, you know, they'll have experts in, in this and they'll, they'll provide some guidance. But really, you need to know your own business. And you need to invest in knowing your own your own activities and your own sort of currency exposures, which is more difficult than people imagine, just because sometimes the processing and the sort of accounting systems are not set up to handle sort of multi-currency or provide that. But that's what you have to invest. So again, it's a function of having the right systems and being able to extract the right data. We hedge our exposures through largely through the sort of forward currency markets, and we find that to be quite effective. Having the right systems and really being able to have a clear vision of that data, is it required in real time too? It is for some activities. I think if I were to sort of prioritize them, I mean, I want to know my cash positions in real time. First, above everything else, 
Do I need to have all of my sort of currency transactions real time? Probably not because there's a more predictable pattern to these and you're not going to have quite the same swings. Do I want to know where the FX rates are and where I can execute real time? Of course. And I think systems have evolved to actually provide you more of those things that are that that benefit from building real-time execution systems, for example, or cash management systems are much more focused on real-time information than a typical accounting system. Am I hearing some of your background as a treasurer come into play there, that knowing that cash position in the back of your pocket is critical? Yeah, I I think that any finance professional would put cash management now in the sort of highest priority, most important segment of their responsibilities. I mean, it's certainly, it's, there's been more profile and there's been more importance to t- attach to it. I, th- I think because companies perhaps a bit more levered or perhaps there's been more sort of volatility in terms of cash management. Absolutely. I think that is a skill that has certainly developed and, and improved over the last few years. That is an amazing point that you're making and one that really kind of perks my interest because I think that, especially in this next section called the playbook. You hand me an idea that I can shock the world with. I got one more page in my playbook. Now get out there and do it. We want to uncover what is it that's meaningful right now. We hear a lot about cash management, liquidity at the center of the financial decision-making process, you're saying it's not only at the center, it's at the top of the pyramid as the number one priority. And earlier in our conversation, Paolo, you said that technology helps you do business in a more refined way, that you can do business in a more streamlined way. And so I'm wondering if the value of technology is creating opportunities at slimmer margins, that the liquidity then and the cash position becomes even more critical. And in that case, is it just today that liquidity will be important or really going forward as technology is creating more opportunities in the margins, won't it always be at the forefront of every financial leader's decision-making process? You know, for me, it's difficult to imagine that it's going to be less important. So the idea that sort of liquidity management is going to become less of a priority, I think, is is that feels very remote. The sort of importance of uh, of sort of cash and liquidity management is perhaps as a function of the amount of sort of leverage that many companies have. Perhaps it's a function of the rate of change now that we're seeing in terms of the cost of debt. Perhaps it's a function of the differential in rates that you can get. But right now, I mean, for most corporates, for most large corporates, this is going to be as important to their profitability and to their viability as anything, if not the most important thing. But, you know, outside the basic business model being sort of viable, I think, how you're able to run your balance sheet and the returns that you're able to get and the costs of financing are going to have a tremendous impact on your results. And then, as you say, there's also the other financial market type of impact, such as FX. But interest rates have gone from, they were at 0% for a really very, very long time. I mean, give or take a relatively short period of three years ago when they sort of crept up, but they've been at 0% for most of the last 12 years, 13 years. And now we're seeing interest rates that you know might well normalize at 3 
the sort of differential that you get between different currencies, between different instruments, either as a borrower or a lender, are you going to be very important? So yes, you need that information in order to be able to manage that effectively. And it will have a very big impact on your business profitability because margins generally have become tighter. And as you say, the FX is one of those areas where there's more volatility these days around your cash position and understanding your cash position. Are other areas around the volume of payments that are being made and potentially the risk within that payment structure, like fraud, for example, is that a consideration for today's CFO? Sadly, it is. Yeah. I mean, I think the the risks of some type of payment issue or the risks of some type of either sort of fraudulent or criminal engagement, it certainly exists. And we've seen plenty of examples of credible and sort of well-controlled organizations sort of suffering for that. So you do need to have an alertness to this and you need to put in place all of the sort of necessary protections. And they won't be absolutely watertight, but you can make them close to close to watertight. You, you've got to have considered what they are. I mean, we spend a lot of time on cybersecurity. We spend a lot of time on perimeter protection for our technology assets. We are very control-orientated around our you know, payments processes, as you need to be. 100%. The, there's a multi-level security approach in order to really be completely confident and have the ability to sleep at night. I would imagine you talk about perimeter security, and it's also that the large, at least reports that I've been reading as well, is that SEC or BEC, the phishing scams and the other types of sophisticated impersonation that is bringing up a lot of, especially with technology, potential challenges. I just saw the movie Maverick. I'm not sure if you're picking that up there, but the new Top Gun Tom Cruise movie. And there's been some facial simulation technology that's probably controversial at a level of even payment fraud. If you can imagine somebody zooming your face onto theirs and and having you ask to move some money, what are the other internal protocols that you would have to have to make sure that doesn't happen? No, I mean, it's some of the, the technology or the sort of higher profile images that, that you've seen of these deep fake impersonations are terrifying and 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 it does mean that you can't just rely on sort of single source verifications can't just be a zoom call you do need to have multi-factor multi-person controls and but you know, the reality is the criminals will modify and find sort of ways around this you need to have a mindset where you're always looking to anticipate and make that as sort of difficult as possible but yeah, some of it is extraordinary and it is quite frightening. On the one level, I agree with you. It's incredible and fascinating. The technology is where it is. And at the other, it's let's make sure that there's an AI that is analyzing your payments and data against known bank accounts or unknown bank accounts to ensure that these aren't bad actors and multi-person, multi-channel authentication, real critical there. So great points to make and, and I think helpful for the community. Absolutely. So there's a lot of risks where you sit, Paulo. The CFO has many things to consider when it comes to ensuring that the company is able to evolve and grow in a predictable and reliable manner. 
What do you think the next generation of finance leaders really need to become a CFO? And in this section, we call the report from the future. Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. I see the future. The future is the finish line. I've always believed that the world is what we make of it. There's no organization that now needs a CFO just to be a reporting person. So there's sort of the old image of having a, a CFO is essentially just just providing sort of annual reports and management reports. Finance has sort of moved itself into the front line of business and sort of business decisions. And whether that's resource allocations or whether it's the commercial transaction decisions, the questions around the profitability of individual businesses or clients, it's much more central to the sort of operation of a business. So what do you need? You need to have commercial skills. You need to think of yourself as, I think, an owner of the business as well as being a a sort of guardian of the assets and guardian of the organization. So you need to extend the skills that you have because it used to be perhaps a bit more compartmentalized and you could be highly skilled in the, the basics of finance, but you need to know more about treasury and payments and technology and treasury. And you need to have control sort of control understanding, which perhaps that wasn't so important in the past, so that you are anticipating areas of risk. So it's a really, it's a broad set of skills. I mean, for me, it's a really sits at the center of the organization, the commercial organization, great platform to influence the the business. I mean, there's a very high number of CFOs that become the CEO for, for a good reason. I think within this sort of FTSE 100, it's somewhere in the 30 or 40% of CEOs have come from from this the finance world. So great platform to know the commercials, influence the commercials, and to become an effective commercial leader. I think in a nutshell, you have to be the best, most knowledgeable, and the most commercial person in the organization. You have to know more about almost every dimension than than anyone else. And that is, I think, the real appeal is that you can have such a sort of broad insight. We've heard a lot of CFOs say that this is an incredibly competitive set. And as you are just sharing with me, it's thought to be the one that's ahead of everyone else in their own role in order to be the best business partner that you can be. And in other words, you're having a lot of empathy and insight at the same time to understand where they want to go as a person and where they should be taking their function to help grow the business. Is that an exciting part of the CFO role for you? Absolutely. I think the opportunity to help your partners, help your colleagues build successful businesses and drive certain outcomes. it's really exciting. And perhaps I'm sort of talk, talking my own book, but I think that you have perhaps more influence in terms of the financial success than almost any other area. Now, I mean, that will vary by business, but certainly in my, in my experience, you can have you know, enormous impact. Well, not only can you have great impact when you have strong relationships and you're in a competitive but supportive way to help improve all the business leaders in your organization, but as you were saying, Paulo, technology really does help. And as a CFO of the future, would you encourage other CFOs 
to think about the value of things like artificial intelligence? Are there other emerging technologies that you think are significant and will help financial leaders in the future? You absolutely have to know a good deal about technology. And whether it's the sort of broad categories of development like AI, or whether it's cloud computing, or whether it's slightly more you know, functional understanding, you absolutely have to know the technology. And you have to think about the way the technology supports your sort of process and your access to information. So you know, anyone wanting to be a CFO must, must know about technology and must want to know about technology because it's so fundamental. Well, we're moving in at faster pace and with much larger amounts of data. And as you said, in order to create an efficient business model, you need to have insights about that data. Let's just wrap up this podcast with a few quick hits. Hurry up, hurry up. Quick, 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 quick. And these are just answers that are off the cuff, don't need to be real in depth. But as you're saying, that kind of digital literacy that's required for the modern CFO or the future CFO, is it creating a specialization? Are, are CFOs becoming more specialized or is there a more general expectation that the CFO knows a little bit about everything? I think you're actually becoming less specialized. So you're you know, less the sort of finance geek and much more the, the sort of all-round business interpreter. So yes, less specialized, but you have to obviously invest your own time. I think it probably puts quite a lot of demand on the individuals to you know, invest time in understanding these sort of emerging technologies or, or, or indeed the sort of available technologies. Yeah. And, you know, along with that, I mean, kind of the logic seems that there's a place where the CFO is going and that is being really not a generalist like jack of all trades, master of none, but actually masterful in aligning all of the trades in a way that is productive with that core finance. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It's, I think, probably a more demanding role than it has been in the past because the breadth is greater and the need to be knowledgeable in, in, a, in a wider number of areas is greater. And perhaps that places sort of more pressure on on the CFO than just being the the finance guy. But that said, I mean, it makes it more interesting. It gives you more opportunity to sort of influence and to help shape things. But and ultimately, as you say, it's about having enough information that you can make sure the alignment is appropriate. You're never going to be the most knowledgeable in any single area. So you just have to know enough that you can identify who the sort of key people are and what the right questions are to to ask them. So it has, for me, it's become more challenging, but also very much more interesting space. Yeah. Along with all of that, as companies grow, there's always going to be that need for having an understanding of your liquidity and cash position because at the heart of any organization, you just can't grow if you don't have that. It seems to me that there could be a place where the CFO becomes, as you're saying, that master of the alignment and and enabling the team and partners. But then potentially there's room for a chief liquidity officer. What do you think about that? Is there going to be a new specialization at the chief level that may be focused on liquidity? I, I think the sort of investment office 
always has an eye on liquidity. So I think somewhere between the sort of investment office, chief investment officer and the treasurer, you will find that that exists. I sort of feel like depending on the organization, your treasurer is your chief liquidity officer. It may not be the title they have, but it is certainly the sort of centerpiece of what I think they, they do. It might be the title they deserve, though, right? <laughs> it might. It might be. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that's right. I'm leading the witness. I know. I, I apologize. Well, listen, a couple quick questions. Do you think artificial intelligence will replace people? No. No. There's too much alignment. And why do you think that artificial intelligence is just going to be still an enabler regardless of the scenario? Because, um, I mean, at least for the sort of foreseeable future, I think the sophistication of human thinking is going to be monumentally greater than AI. But I think there are very good applications where that won't be true. So medical science in I don't know, some of the sort of geospatial analysis, that absolutely won't be true. I think there's tremendous opportunities. We have a investment in an environmental program in uh, Indonesia, mangrove swamp, um, a mangrove regeneration. You can't do that just with with sort of human involvement. It has to be down to geospatial analysis using technology. So that there are applications where that will be applicable, but in a broad sense, it's going to be difficult to see yeah. that sort of being very prevalent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, a friend of the podcast is doing some work in Africa and there's a lot of space to cover there. And so if you think about how disintermediated the financial environment is, it, technology is making a big splash. I don't think we had a chance to really dive into Merrick's. What, why don't you give us like, what does Merrick's do? How is it serving the the, the globe? Tell us a little bit about Merrick's. Merrick's is a financial services firm. Essentially, we you know we are, we provide a platform for clients to access markets and and liquidity, and that varies from commodity players. For example, we have some very large agricultural agricultural players in in the U.S. that are clients of ours. They have needs to hedge their exposures, to hedge their production, in some cases to sort of help with the physical elements of their activity, and Marek's can service that, as well as a much wider range of access to markets. So that's what we provide. We're wholesale, so you're probably not going to see us in the sort of retail space, but you know we think we're sort of carving a, a sort of important space in being a provider to a large number of professionals that need access to these markets. Well, when you think about, especially right now, being able to help a company that provides grain and supplies foods to the world, it has a, a quite a large role as we're seeing difficulties in some areas, not only with some of the environmental impacts of the high heat temperatures, but also just the challenges in the Ukraine and, and Russia making supply chain transportation more difficult. Would you say Merrick's is helping companies just facilitate movement of product or the funding of the services to enable the business to move? We facilitate the management of their activity more on the financial side. So in terms of hedging their output and ensuring that they have price protection than with the logistics. There are some cases where we provide financing and that's also important. I mean, a lot of these businesses are very cash intensive. All your cash is in your crops or in your in your production. So yeah, so we, we facilitate that. And you know, hopefully that 
makes the market a little bit more efficient and ensures that at least there's a sort of continued serviceable market for this. Unfortunately, I think some of these geopolitical issues, it's very difficult to watch that without just just feeling the personal and the human cost and impact. And I wish we could do more with that. But what we try and do is at least sort of help with the market more more generally. Excellent. Well, that's a great point to close on. Merrick's is really doing what it can to help the market in general and really push these businesses and clients with better technology services. Paulo, it's been a real pleasure hearing from you and your background and experience on your road to CFO. And I hope all of our guests, and I, I know that our guests will really benefit from some of the insights that you provided. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you for listening to The Invisible Vault. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. The Invisible Vault is powered by the team at Kariba, the global leader in cloud treasury and finance solutions, empowering CFOs and their teams to transform how they activate liquidity as a dynamic real-time vehicle for growth and value creation. To learn more, visit kariba.com.